Hello and welcome to the fifth edition of Understanding Yoga Studies. Uh, my name is Vicky Abnell. I'm an MA student here at SOAS and a member of the Centre of Yoga Studies. Uh, today we're not looking at one discipline in particular, but rather more broadly at interdisciplinarity as an approach to the study of yoga. And I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Dagmar Viastic to help us explore the topic. Dagmar is an Indologist specialised in history and literature of classical Indian medicine and South Asian history and is currently the Associate Professor in the Department of History, Classics and Religious Studies at the University of Alberta in Canada. Her publications include Well-Mannered Medicine, Medical Ethics and Etiquette in the Sanskrit Medical Classics and an edited volume entitled Modern and Global Ayurveda, Pluralism and Paradigms. From 2015 to 2020, Dagmar was also the principal investigator of a European Research Council-funded project entitled Medicine, Immortality, Moksha, Entangled Histories of Yoga, Ayurveda and Alchemy in South Asia, or Ayuryog for short. The project examined the entangled histories of yoga, Ayurveda and Rasa Shastra from the 10th century to the present, focusing on health, rejuvenation and longevity practices and their evolution as components of today's global healthcare and personal development industries. All of which make her the perfect guest to unpick the opportunity and complexities of studying in an interdisciplinary way. So welcome Dagmar, thank you so much for finding time to, to speak with us. So... We can explore. <laughs> Thank you. We can um, explore this topic together because I don't think it's necessarily a given what what we mean by interdisciplinarity. But um, I was going to start with that question in the in the context of academia. Uh, what does interdisciplinarity mean? mean for you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, Vicky, for having me. So um, we just had a little chat before we started this recording. And I was saying to you then that before you had sort of sent me those questions, I, I had never really thought about the, the concept of interdisciplinarity much. And, uh, you know, indeed, I, I was finding myself going to a Wikipedia page on interdisciplinarity just to see what is it and am I really doing interdisciplinary work exactly? Because there's a way in which we, we hear interdisciplinary and we all have some idea, you know, it means various disciplines coming together to explore a common subject, you know, bringing different perspectives and so on. And But is this really what is meant by, by interdisciplinary studies or by, you know, am I really doing interdisciplinary studies in a way? And so the, my, my answer is I'm, I'm not totally sure because I think multidisciplinary might be a contender for, for what I've been doing over the last years as well. And then, of course, just, you know, thinking of when you work in a project, you work in a team, uh, but every individual in the team is doing their own thing and and within uh within my work i sort of concentrating on on my skills and on the topics that i'm familiar with the methodologies i'm familiar with but of course as project leader i i need to sort of be aware of and and work with the the skill sets of the various people that that i work with and and so um and that's really where i guess interdisciplinarity comes uh, comes into it um uh, sort of bringing together the various things Do you know and i i was um, you know, honestly, the Wikipedia page, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to read out uh, one of the sentences from it because I was really thinking, you know, is this what we were doing? And it's it's really the sentence, interdisciplinarity is best seen as bringing together distinctive components of two or more disciplines. And so, uh, but, but starting out from the idea of a self-contained and isolated domain of human experience, which possesses its own community of experts. And so I think uh, my, my main problem with the idea of interdisciplinarity is really 
uh, that you start out with the idea of a boundary discipline to begin with. So for me, I am I'm an Indologist, and uh, so I am a philologist. That's that's my main training. But you know, even Indology, which you know doesn't even quite exist anymore, because you know what used to be Indological departments is now mostly South Asian studies and so on. But you know, even though we mostly learned, had uh, philological training, it was never so completely boundaried what we were doing. So already, you know, just to start off with, you know, am I just one thing as a scholar or is my subject already interdisciplinary to begin with? And yoga, of course, you know, definitely, you know, immediately brings with it, uh, you know, a multitude of perspective on uh, perspectives on what it is and how to approach it. So, um, so that would be my, my first thoughts on interdisciplinarity. And uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to give that question back to you. What is it to you? <laughs> um, so I think I, I did much the same thing when I started looking at, at the topic uh, for this month. And I, on reading around it, it struck me that it, it seems like a relatively recent concept that has rather just encouraged looking beyond academic boundaries. So where things sit within boxes, something is classed as, you know, as you said, you know, Indology or not, um, or sociology or not, or these sort of camps that exist within academia and, and perhaps interdisciplinarity is a way that we can think beyond them and um, perhaps challenge academic norms. Uh, so that was my sort of main takeaway. But I think within sort of yoga studies, we were pretty good at doing that anyway. <laughs> like you said, it, it tends to come quite naturally when you start delving in, into these things. And on which note, I mean, one of the things that interested me about your research is, I mean, it's it you must have had to tackle some really niche topic areas when you're looking at Ayurveda and the crossover with science, medicine, alchemy, um, all of the above and more, I imagine. Uh, how do you start to inform yourself about those things? You must have to learn as you're dealing with a, a text, for example, about different kinds of knowledge that were maybe more prevalent. I don't know, you know, <laughs> centuries ago. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, you, you always bring your own, you know, experience and, and your training with you. So for me, looking at Ayurveda had been a longstanding thing because I'd been translating Ayurvedic texts for a long time. I'd also been interested in yoga for a long time, partly uh, because it's just a very pervasive topic within Indology and within all sort of branches of Indology. So, so you know, yoga just really pops up absolutely everywhere. You know, whether you're a scholar of, you know, the Puranas or the epics or indeed medicine or so. So it's just one of those topics that, that you find is, is just there uh, and sometimes quite unexplained or, you know, not examined at any depth. And so, you know, I bring with me, of course, you know, just my philological training so I can read the text and I can think about translation. And then you have all these sort of things about, you know, how do you understand a term within its particular context? So yoga the word may appear, but does it mean what it means in another text or another context and so on? And obviously this changes over time. But thinking about, you know, the project, the Ayurveda project, um, I think that academic work actually grows a bit more organically than, you know, maybe is, is given, you know, credit for. And one of the things that happens is that your ideas 
are partly informed by the things that you already know or think you know, and then who you're talking with. And so, uh, you know, so when I started thinking about doing a project, you know, the first thing was, you know, I'd like to do a project and get some funding for the project. What project do I want to do? And I don't know who, who do I want to work with? You know, so, so it's actually, and that, that was really my, my beginning point. I mean, I had this sort of vague thought about how, you know, somehow Ayurveda, yoga, and also alchemy are historically connected. I could see it in, in the text, but I also, you know, I was doing yoga teacher training in the early 2000s and I, you know, was sort of uh, grappling with the idea of yoga as therapy, as medical therapy. So I'd always had that in the back of my mind as something that, you know, I couldn't really see it so much in the early texts, uh, in the Ayurvedic texts and so on, uh, nor in the yoga texts that I was familiar with. Where had that come up? So I had some very vague thoughts about all of this and my my first thing was that you know I'd go to a to various conferences and speak to various people about you know any of these these topics and uh you know sort of some of the first people I was talking to was actually Mark Singleton who I had worked with at uh, the um Dharamanduja Institute of Indic Research at Cambridge University uh, which was you know led by um Elizabeth de Michaelis so we had done yoga research of course and um also spoke to Jason Birch actually Mark came up with the title uh to the project it's a rather long, not the Ayurvedic one, not the acronym, but the actual the long, the long title. I still regret it. It's all Mark's fault. Uh, it was sort of, uh, you know, just some conversations about, you know, what would be interesting. And he obviously knew a lot about the modern yoga scene and had been thinking about it for a long time. And I also spoke to Jason Birch, and he'd, he'd been looking at, you know, these sort of Hatha yoga texts or what we now don't really think of as Hatha Yoga texts anymore, but sort of medieval and, and pre-modern texts and so on. And, and really the, the sort of that's where it started. And I mean, Mark then, you know, instead, um, you know, went and worked on the Hatha Yoga project, as did Jason. But these were the people I talked to first. And then, um, you know, then I asked Suzanne, who I'd also worked with a little bit before, you know, would she, you know, like to come on board with this? And so she brought her thoughts and ideas um, on board. And and it's really as organic as that, you know, you sort of like, what are the questions that we want to ask and how are we going to do it? And then we, we got um, some other researchers on board, Christelle Barrois, who is like me, an Indologist, but has always been looking at sort of different areas. So she was looking at epics and piranhas and uh, various philosophical concepts and so on and you know then it's really a, a bigger conversation uh, about what it is that that we want to do and that doesn't stop you know it's not like we we, we alight upon this big idea and then we do it but rather it's it's a process you know with new ideas coming in new people working Patricia Saltoff uh, joined the project and did more on alchemy and so on so um, you know in, in that way it's it's interdisciplinary because of the people and that's really my starting point, right? And and the people, it's really crucial because if you're going to do any kind of work and you're going to work with other people, you must be interested in what they have to say, of course, and you must trust in, in their expertise. Uh, but also there, there has to be this sort of willingness to communicate with each other, and it's really very much built on trust. So in a way on friendship and on on being able to communicate and and I think real interdisciplinarity, you know, really bridging gaps between disciplines if there are any and so on can only happen if people are willing to take the time and can relax in a way uh, enough to be able to sort of find this common ground and also to explore differences without it becoming, you know, sort of un- insurmountable 
because that is one of the challenges, obviously, of, of interdisciplinary work. And that um, process of communication, which pulls all these these people and a, and a project together, how does that happen in practice over a five-year project like the IEOG project? Yeah, so it's uh, it's meetings, right? We were in a, in a very strange a situation where none of us were uh, geographically in the same uh, location. Uh, so the, the project was, uh, the, the main host institution was the University of Vienna. Uh, and uh, Christelle came to Vienna, but Suzanne was always working in England. And uh, she at the, when she began, she was working at Inform uh, and at LSE, and then moved over to King's College. So we were sort of uh, geographically separate. I actually moved to Canada to take up my, my professorship here. And so, you know, obviously we'd be using, well, Zoom and Skype and, you know, that, that, this sort of social media. And we'd also have uh, meetings. So we'd join uh, together to, to go to uh, conferences together. For example, the yoga conference in Krakow. Um, uh, we, we also had sort of annual meetings where we just meet for a week or two in Vienna and sort of explore our ideas uh, from there. And so, um, you know, it's sort of that sort of talking with each other. And, you know, that actually, you know, our, so it was a bit of a hurdle um, being in different places, but it also worked in our favor. For example, uh, you know, Suzanne being in, in London meant that she had access, access to archives that we didn't have easy access to and so on. So, you know, that, that was kind of an interesting aspect uh, of, of our work. I think sometimes, though, I think that it would have been a little bit easier to have a sort of ongoing conversation if we had actually been, you know, in in the same department uh, at the same time, and I think that would have that would have made some things yeah quite a lot easier. Uh, but you know now after the pandemic, we we can sort of see how you know we have to be much more flexible in our ways of thinking of how we can work together. And you know thank goodness for for the various um, platforms that we can use to to talk to each other. Yeah, absolutely, and that's everyone's become a lot more used to it. I think as 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 well, you know, a lot more comfortable with with that. Um, Another part of the Ayog project that I've been tapping into on your amazing YouTube archive um, was how you'd done the process of, well, you'd conducted the process of embodied philology working with a, I'm, I'm not sure what to describe him as, but like a, a chemist or an alchemist <laughs> that you were working with um, to recreate some of the, um, I think it was some of the Rasa Shastra um, processes. And I, yeah, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because it looked fascinating. Also a little bit hair raising at times. <laughs> they were edited out. <laughs> yes. Well, you didn't see the really hair raising moments, I suppose. <laughs> Edited out, yeah. So health and safety uh, concerns. No, so uh, this was um, Andrew Mason, uh, who uh, you know, again, and I think friendship and trust, and you know, who you meet at various places in your life always plays such a big role in what you can do. So, so Andrew is. Um, amongst other things, uh, an Ayurvedic practitioner. So he has trained in Ayurveda and classical Indian medicine. He did this in the UK. But they, uh, the UK program had a thing where um, the, the students would also go to India or to Sri Lanka to, to do some sort of uh, yeah, extra training. And uh, he went to Sri Lanka 
and uh, and and sort of did a some special training in Rasa Shastra, which is nowadays a sort of is yatra chemistry, so chemical medicine, um, and is derived from Indian alchemy but in its medical form. So you have the sort of procedures that you have for alchemy, for making gold or for making elixirs of immortality, but focused on you know, sort of medicinal values of the products that you make. And so he has this um, special training that he got on Sri Lanka. And, uh, you know, I, I can't even quite work out how, how I know Andrew. Um, you know, it's been, it's been years. He wrote a very lovely book, um, The Secrets of Rasa Shastra, which I can really recommend. And, um, you know, so we've been talking talking for years and and I had I had some money left over essentially at the end of the the project because we couldn't travel at the end you know so uh, because of the pandemic so I had this huge travel budget that I you know could use the money for something else and I just thought well you know, the alchemy of probably all the three topics of yoga and medicine and alchemy is, is the sort of least known of the the topics of the IO uh, project and you know translating translating the alchemical works I, I always found myself just thinking what does this look like what what does it look like and in medicine I'd seen medicine being made and I'd visited um, you know Ayurvedic practitioners in India and so on and I had a really good idea of what this looked like and for alchemy I just really didn't and the language is quite extraordinary in the text and so on so I thought well you know why why not, you know, ask Andrew, could he do some reconstructions with me? And, and thankfully, he had the time and I could pay him, uh, underpay him, I have to say, though, sadly, uh, uh, for, for this. And we went into this very naively because I was sort of starting with the thought, OK, I'm going to it's a very short chapter, 13 verses. And could you just do whatever is said in the verses? He said, sure. And both of us, I think, thought this would be, you know, a month's worth of work. And it took eight months. Uh, and so. I know it's I mean of course you know he had some other jobs and you know he sort of make a living otherwise as well but you know he did work on it uh, for a very long time and so but we did you know just try to do this and and sort of he could apply his his knowledge of of you know sort of the processes uh, and he had you know access to some of the materials um, he's also just really talented I think as an artist because not only did he do um, the the reconstructions based on my translations he also you know he filmed everything he took the pictures and he you know I think his sort of artistic flair is a really big factor and why why this is quite such appealing uh, material and then we'd sort of sit together and, and go through a sort of editorial process of, of you know editing the films and sort of putting in the text and thinking of what we wanted to show and what we didn't want to show and obviously you know given that it took so long to do these things you know you don't want to have you know 20 minutes or you know 20 hours of him grinding a material or so you have to sort of show that this is happening and and so this was very interesting and I thought of it as you know giving me some idea of what the text was saying and, you know, to explain some of the vocabulary. And I, you know, and, and, and to a limited extent it, it, it did, but what it really gave me as an insight is just a sense of, you know, how an alchemist would spend his time or her time, but probably his time, uh, namely grinding things takes ages to do stuff and trying not to get burnt and so on. So it was just a, it, it, really gave me some insight into, you know, the day-to-day life of an alchemist, as it were. And for, for Andrew, you know, it was just interesting doing these things because, of course, you know, the, the modern Rasa Shastra things, they don't do a lot of the more lengthy uh, pro- things, you know, procedures. And, of course, they're not trying to make elixirs of immortality either. 
Uh, but it was just sort of interesting to see, you know, these the, we chose the oldest of the alchemical texts and he hadn't worked with that before and so on. So he thought it was a really interesting uh, process as well. So, you know, we thought it was um, mutually beneficial in, in that way. And it's uh, elicited a lot of interest, also a lot of criticism. If you look at the comment section uh, on our YouTube channel, you know, the people are quite fierce about it as well. Yeah, yeah, I did see some of the comments. Um, I I guess uh, for the benefit of some of our listeners, it might help to just explain what Rasa Shastra is and perhaps how it was how it was used historically or what you know what the context is historically in some of the texts that you were recreating and then perhaps also how it's seen today or how it's used or practiced today sure i'm sorry i should have done that right yeah so um so rasa shastra or rasa vidya you know it's a sanskrit compound word right shastra means sort of body of knowledge or discipline and rasa in this uh, context means mercury rasa has many different meanings but you know basically this is a discipline that is focused on the uses of mercury and so in something like the 10th century maybe a little bit earlier maybe quite a lot earlier but the text sort of from the 10th century uh, start uh, describing ways of processing mercury to make elixirs that would then be used to give a yogi, so people are called yogis, sometimes also sadhakas or adept, spiritual adepts, ways of accessing an experience of transcendence, uh, sometimes also special powers, the, the famous cities, uh, sometimes just longevity or uh, perfect health or perfect vision, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, sometimes also uh, to, to attain a state of becoming like Shiva, for example. So different texts give different aims for the use of these, these elixirs. And so the, these texts describe very complicated processes of, of purifying and perfecting mercury to make these elixirs. And so it's, it becomes a whole genre of literature and it sort of describes almost like a professional group, as it were, you know, so, so people who are alchemists uh, with this focus on mercurial, mercurial elixirs. But over time, the, this, this uh, genre of literature and also maybe the groups of people practicing it changes and the focus um, sort of turns towards medicine. So you're still using the same sorts of procedures to, to make basically elixirs, pills and so on, but now you're using it in different ways uh, uh, for, well, still longevity and health and so on, but also really to counter disease. And this part then, you know, sort of it branches off as it were. So then you have whole works that are purely medical and then you still have some works where, where you have more of a mixture of spiritual aims, uh, also worldly aims, like, you know, using them for Af as aphrodisiacs and so on, but also medicinal aims. But the sort of medicine one splits off and then um, becomes more and more integrated into classical Ayurveda, into classical Indian medicine. Right. Until it becomes like a sort of subschool of it. So you have the normal Indian medicine with all this herbal concoctions and so on. And then you also have the use of mercurials or other mineral medicines using the methodology first developed uh, within alchemical milieus. And so if you fast forward to the 20th century, uh, you know, Indian medicine becomes professionalized, you know, becomes part of the public health setup in India, also in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Pakistan and so on, under different names. But at that time, this sort of Rasa Shastra, this medicalized 
alchemy is already sort of a, a, a part of Ayurveda. And so it's it's immediately in there when, when you know, Ayurveda is, you know, there's university education in Ayurveda, there's regulated practice and so on, there's, there's medical research in Ayurveda. So then Rasa Shastra is then a part of that, you know. So if you're doing a degree in medicine in India today, you can do a degree in Ayurveda. You will also have sort of modules on Rasa Shastra, and then later, if you've done basically your BAMS, your Bachelor of Ayurvedic Medicine and Surgery, you can then, you know, do a higher degree. And, and there you can specialize in Rasa Shastra, for example, and then go into research, into pharmaceutical production and so on. So it's all still there. Well, not all of it, but, you know, a lot of the these, these thousand-year-old procedures are still being applied today for pharmaceutical production. So that's the that's that's Rasa Shastra today. And is there um I mean obviously on the topic of interdisciplinarity, I guess is there a difference then between what is defined as medicine, as Ayurveda, as uh, do these sort of boundaries differ depending on geographic context? So in India, what is considered uh, you know, part of those topics? versus here versus what we would study and how that would be categorized in perhaps the European Academy versus the Indian Academy. And I mean, we mentioned the comments on YouTube, but does that throw up challenges in terms of how things are seen across geographic boundaries? Yeah, so, you know, the reconstruction videos, you know, they're they're historical reconstructions of, of texts you know, that, that were the things that we were doing, we weren't making medicines, right? So we were sort of staying away from the part of uh, Rasa Shastra that is, that is what is being done today in, in you know, universities and so on. Um, uh, and so the people commenting would be people who would be more interested in the sort of alchemy side of things. So in making gold, for example, they actually want to make gold or, or you know, they, they feel they have some access to this sort of knowledge. And so so we're, so as far as I could see, you know, the, the professional uh, Rasa Shastra doctors, physicians in India, they, I think they're not very worried about about these, these videos and what we were doing. It's, it's not, you know, they they don't get trained in this area so so it's it's in a way of no concern to them though they are of course always worried about being associated with you know something unscientific and so on so if we're doing a video on making of gold you know then they will go like yeah but why are you showing this why are you not showing the more scientific side of, of what we're doing and i think a lot of people had trouble with understanding what it was that it was historical reconstruction rather than a diy video we weren't actually teaching people to make gold we were sort of saying what does the text say and can we reconstruct it and often the answer is well we can but we can't really and look the outcome is wrong but um so uh so you know you have sort of groups defending their their area in a, in a way and so in india you know when we talk about sort of alchemy we have a sort of north south divide and we have the sanskrit literature and the kind of practices described in it and then we have a whole other area which is the tamil literature which we didn't deal with in my project very much because none of us read tamil and uh, so um and and tamil tamil medicine nowadays so siddha medicine very similar to ayurveda but it integrates alchemy to a greater extent than ayurveda does and also yoga 
And so I think a lot of the comments we had were maybe from South Indian practitioners who have that spiritual aim, who have the transcendent aim, but who also believe in the cities. And for them, for example, that we were working just using a text, not working within a context of having a guru and so on. That was something they found really difficult. And also for them, uh, for for the groups uh, to whom the, the spiritual aspect is very, very important, uh, this is a secret science. And so you're sort of like, you're airing secrets, you know, so that, that you know, that was sort of, and then, you know, some were saying, just saying, you know, you're doing it wrong. And we, we fully knew that we were likely to be doing it wrong because we just had the text. And we just sort of trying, can we use the text as a as a manual or, you know, how, how would this work? So it's a, like a question, a research question that I think many people didn't really understand, uh, you know, when they were sort of thinking about what we were doing. Yeah. And in terms of working in this way of, of bringing different disciplines and skills and, and things together on a project like I, the IU project, um I think we've probably covered some of the opportunities that brings of, of you know what comes out of that meeting of minds are there also challenges of working across you know different people's understandings of topics as well yeah very much so and you know as I was saying earlier when we were chatting before the recording you know sometimes it's difficult not to think of it mostly in terms of challenges and basically one of the things you have to uh, watch out for is that the you know trying to work with you know between different disciplines is that you that you don't have basically parallel play you know each just doing their own thing without there ever being a meeting of ideas and you know an adjustment um of of thought so sometimes it'd be you know just the kinds of questions that you would ask would be so different um you know and also you know of course you know the methodologies used uh, can be can be very very um different and so it's it's you know in a way everybody uh, engaging in interdisciplinary work in a way has to train themselves to some extent at least to understand where the other person is coming from and you know that can be really difficult you know sort of like you're because you have to go away from your own comfort zone as it were and and your own assumptions and 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 own skills you know and suddenly you're a newbie you know sort of there I am you know 20 years of you know, experience in Sanskrit studies and then you know I, I talk with Suzanne and we're talking about field work and the ethics of it and I have no idea uh, you know or sort of ways of looking at history and so on so it's a yeah the overcoming your own ego I think is a big part of it in, in some sense and again there's this trust element you know to be able to to be that uh, student again, in a sense, you know, when you're asking the questions, being willing to try and really understand and so on. So that's a challenge, but it's also obviously um, an opportunity. And I think one of the things that I I found again and again in, in all my work, you know, speaking with not just in that project, but, you know, just you're being, you're part of a larger community of academics and non-academics. And um, one of the things that you need to do a lot uh, in academic work is, um to confront your own assumptions and you know, very often we're not aware of the assumptions that we we carry around you know we have these professional boundaries of you know being an endologist or whatever but sometimes we don't quite realize to what extent um you know we are uh, we're held back by by sort of ideas of of what is happening and how to go about a question or even what question to ask and so i think this is 
this is a good thing in, in working with, with people from other disciplines is to, to really see uh, where you are limiting yourself in the way you, you think of something. And um, it's not easy to overcome your own limitations. And, you know, it's really, it takes time. And, you know, we always think that academics have an open mind. And I think we do in comparison to, you know, maybe, you know, other people possibly, I don't know, you know, probably always wrong saying anything about any bigger group of people. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that, the, you know, um, overcoming one's own perspective can be very difficult indeed. And it's worth doing for sure. Yeah, I think probably applies to all walks of life, right? It's always good to uh, approach something with humility and an open mind, but not always easy. Um and probably, I guess, in academia, you're expected to be an expert in something. So putting that to one side sometimes is, you know, makes that, uh, yeah, a, a challenge for sure. It would be really nice, I guess, to hear now that the IEOG project has come to a close. I think in 2020 it, it finished, but I imagine the outputs of the project are still ongoing. So it, it would be amazing just to hear from your perspective of how that and and I appreciate we don't have a lot of time, but but what what was you know what came out of the project for you, and and were your hypotheses going into it correct when you were looking at those entangled trajectories of of those three areas of um, of knowledge and history? Yeah, so um, I I think you know it's always so difficult to because we had so many different things that we were looking at and thinking about you know just to sort of think of where where do the disciplines meet and where don't they meet and I I think um, that one of the outcomes that was sort of interesting to me is just how much uh, yoga does not use Ayurveda as as a uh, you know focal point. You know, Jason Birch did some work for us and sort of thinking about what are the Ayurvedic elements in yogic texts and so on. There's lots of medicine, lots of things where where health is a concern and so on, but it's never central. And really, that's a development as Suzanne has shown. You know, that that's really a late 20th century or 20th century, 21st century development. So we have this sort of real gap in this idea of yoga as therapy. It is it is there, but it's always a minor concern until really very late. And it's not classical Ayurveda that, that yogis were dealing with. They had their own ways of establishing health. Um, they had their own ways of thinking of the body, which where, where there is some overlap with the Ayurvedic body, as it were, with the three humors and so on, but also different ways of coping. And one of the central ways of coping with bad health was, um, you know, tackling it with breathing exercises. So, uh, you know, this is one of the themes that came out as, as sort of one of the uh, the ways in which health played a role for for yogic practitioners, you know, in the in the pre modern era. So, I think that's that's a sort of interesting outcome, which was a little bit expected to me. But you know, now we have a lot of data on this, lots of textual translation and so on. And you can see all of this. Um, uh, you know what what our data points are when you look at our um, yoga and Ayurveda timeline, uh, which is on our website at ayuryog.org. Um, then uh, 
um, Ayurveda and Yoga timeline. So you can see these sort of meeting points. And I think actually this timeline, I'm really pleased with it as an outcome of the project. You know, we can write articles and give talks and so on, but this is something, it's a resource that people can go to and look at and think about a little more and see in what ways these these ideas are expressed in the text and later in, in you know, um, you know, narratives, modern narratives and newspapers and so on. So I'm really pleased with that outcome. I think, um, you know, otherwise uh, the the connections between alchemy and yoga, I think, was maybe the area that we looked at the least. But one of the things that I realized is just that we know so little about alchemy, Indian alchemy, Rasa Shastra, Rasa Vidya, that I kind of had to establish the basics first. So we, we concentrated a bit more at the end of the project into just sort of talking about what what is this Rasa Shastra. And we made a Rasa Shastra timeline, again, just to sort of create some awareness of the discipline and what it is and just give people some sort of idea. So again, I'm really pleased with having put out that resource to, to sort of raise awareness. And I'm also really pleased with the uh, reconstructions because I think they're just, you know, quite, you know, material that is appealing and again, you know, helps create awareness of the existence of, of the thing. So, um, you know, that's that's where we are there. There's a thing I'm still working on. Hopefully it will come out, which is the uh, sooner rather than later, is the Alchemy Reader. So it's translations of various um, chapters of, of various alchemical works. And again, you know, just to give people a better idea of what the whole thing is. Um, so so that's something that, that uh, you know, where, where people can use it again as a resource. So just thinking about the project, you know, it's really the creation of these various resources as something that people can then use in future to think more fully about, about the these ideas of entangled histories, of connected histories of the disciplines and so on is something that I'm, I'm really pleased with. I don't feel we've we've created like a concrete answer uh you know that like the one answer to the question of how do they interconnect they're interconnected in so many different ways at different times and so on uh so you know it's a bit too complex to give a very short summary of of how they did but you know these resources are at least good starting points to get a general idea no i think it, i mean the resources from the project are amazing and i'm sure they'll inspire some future research as well and to help people to yeah think about things in a different way and perhaps in a wider way and i was reading i think it was an article perhaps it's no i think it was a journal article from philip moss who was also talking about part of the um, Patanjali Yoga Shastra and some lines that reference uh, Rasa Shastra or alchemical references and you know certainly from my experience of interacting with those texts in the past it feels like some of the times those things were glossed over because <laughs> no one understood them or had anything to say about them so I think actually starting to have the means to engage with some of that that content and that history is really really amazing um, and I'm sure more interesting things will come. <laughs> On which note, I did want to ask what you felt the future of this kind of interdisciplinary research in yoga studies might hold or what you hope it might hold um, down the line or in, in the next few years. Well, yeah, for sure. And, you know, we need... 
Well, I mean, yoga studies has has really been so interdisciplinary to begin with, right? So, um, we you know just uh, we were talking earlier about who is who is the student demographic and and where do people come from and what's the interest in yoga and we we're thinking about how it's probably very diverse with different interests going on and then the 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 materials that you're confronted with being you know interdisciplinary coming from all these different uh, um, uh, angles and so on. So. Um, so I think, you know, um, the, the, the challenge is really to be able for one person to understand it all, really. And, and that is, um, you know, the good thing in yogic studies is that because it has been interdisciplinary from the start, this is people talking to each other and there's this sort of didactic element of everybody trying to really convey what they're doing to a wider audience. And, and I think that's that's really important, though. I also think that very focused, detailed, uh, you know, uh, work in your own area is also important and provides the data for the sort of big narrative that can come um, uh, later at a, at a secondary point where I think, you know, yogic studies um, might be going, um, you know, this is always you know, with such a diverse group of scholars and people engaging with it and the new students coming up with their, their own interests, you know, what will, I think, happen is simply that, that um, it's, it's very, it's an, inter, it's an individual enterprise. So it will be led by whatever the individuals are interested in. And that will become, you know, the new focus and some things will elicit more interest than, than other things. But if I'm sort of thinking of, you know, what should be people thinking about, you know, you should only you should academic work should be led by curiosity and just, you know, you just uh, do what you think is interesting and then other people's interests will follow. And, you know, you just, you never quite know what will become the next big thing, but also you don't have to worry about something becoming the next thing. Do, do what you're interested in. And, you know, that question that you can't quite find the answer to, you know, I think we're sort of hardwired to solve puzzles and and so I think you know yogic studies is a bit like that, and academic work is like that. So you know, uh, whatever is interesting to you is interesting and is worth looking into and you know finding out about. And I guess hopefully with people coming together more for conferences and meetings, this will also, like you were saying, spark spark journeys of of research uh, within groups of people as as well. Yeah, I think that's probably my number one tip for yogic uh, studies, you know, budding scholars of yogic studies is go to those conferences, go to those workshops, you know, uh, you know, meet meet those people and ask them about their thoughts and hear about what they're doing and, you know, have those conversations, uh, you know, it just makes it so much more vibrant and interesting. And you'll find out so much more about what it is that you might like to look into and think about and so on. And it's also just a very good experience to be part of a community and um, I think that yogic studies is it's quite a nice community it's sort of people who are really interested and engaged so I think it's quite a good experience to to go to these kinds of uh, meetings they're quite inclusive at least that has been my experience you know so I think the next one that's coming up is the one in Krakow and you know anybody who can go you know should go and just just meet your peers yeah, no, I, I agree. I think my experience has also been that we've got a we've got a nice yoga studies community. <laughs> Even as someone just walking into it, everybody seems very friendly. And um, yeah, there's so much interesting work going on as well, which it seems like a very active and dynamic community. 
so I know we've we've run out of time, sadly. Um, so I just wanted to finish by asking whether there was anything you wanted to talk, you know, tell us about that you're working on or have coming out shortly. Um, yeah, anything that uh, to tell the world about through the <laughs> through the podcast. I feel uh, terribly like an interloper here because I'm just talking about alchemy rather than yoga. But the alchemy reader is going to hopefully come out within the next year. Uh, so translations of alchemical works. So have a look into that and see. You know, there there is bits that sort of are about yoga and about tantra also that might be of interest to to, to sort of the yogic studies uh, readership. Um, otherwise, I'm just uh, working on um, alchemical manuscripts and drawings on them of apparatuses and sort of thinking a little bit about material culture you know why are there drawings of things on them you know why do we need this extra explanation when usually it's just texts um so so this is something that i'm just sort of thinking about um right now and uh, you know and otherwise i am right also thinking uh together with jim mallinson and some others about you know could we maybe do a big project on thinking about the connections of you know indian yoga and indian alchemy with uh, chinese similar forms of thought and practice so that's something that uh, may uh, uh, you know develop into a big project so fingers crossed you know we'll, we'll find a, a common language there again <laughs> well good luck that sounds like a fantastic future project and um, thank you again for your time Dagmar it's been really um, really fun to uh, explore interdisciplinarity with you thank you Vicky it was fun to be here <laughs>